Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Aaron Metz McDonald, Kellogg Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame and author of the recently published book, Patchwork Leviathan Pockets of Bureaucratic Effectiveness in Developing States. Aaron introduces us to the budgetary unit, a powerful but underutilized Weberian term, and discusses how she expands Weber's theorizing of bureaucracy through her fieldwork in Ghana. Aaron also provides valuable reflection on what it means to be engaging with writings that are now over a century old. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kyle. Glad to be here. We're here today to talk about Max Weber. And this is a bit of a difficult question when we're dealing with someone who is as wide-reaching an influence or as big a name as Max Weber. But I'm wondering if you could just get us started by talking a bit about who Max Weber was or what he's known for today. Sure. So Max Weber was a German intellectual, mostly working in the late half of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century. He was from an industrial family. His dad was an aspiring politician. His mom was a Calvinist. And if you're someone who's read any of Weber's works, maybe in your classical theory, that'll start to sound already like some of the works he's the most famous for. Uh, I think the work he's probably most famous for is a large volume that was intended to be an edited volume. But then Weber was dissatisfied with the people he had contacted to write some of the sections. And so he wound up really writing most of it himself, which is now known as Economy and Society, and then also a book called The Protestant Ethic. But he's also written a number of other various lectures and essays, such as Science as a Vocation, where he lays out his kind of vision for what the role between the intellectual academic, the world of kind of politics and society should be, uh, which also I think is a really interesting and inspiring text as we for today, you know, hundreds of years later, think about the time that we're in now and the precarious position of intellectuals in modern society. It's kind of an interesting text to revisit. So Weber clearly has a large influence within sociology and the surrounding disciplines. But what I'm wondering is, do you have a sense of whether beyond what's assigned in the classroom, people are reading and engaging with Weber's work? So it's an interesting question. So as you know, Weber is really established as one of a large course offering across the country, he is tucked into the pocket of being part of classical theory. And so a great many people who go through undergraduate and graduate education in sociology are exposed one way or another to his works. I think an interesting, but in some ways kind of challenging feature of that, when I first started getting interested in his ideas about bureaucracy, one of the things I quickly noticed was that he was the constant touch point that went through history for bureaucracy, but that also produced a problem because instead of it being like a stream of knowledge that built on all prior work and moved forward, it was kind of like, I don't know, like a, a radius with one touch point and then a thousand little needles juddling out because people have been building on Weber's ideas of bureaucracy since the 1950s, but constantly starting with the point of Weber, not starting with the most recent scholar who worked on bureaucracy prior to them. And I think that has been both a benefit for the discipline in terms of a, a conversation carried forward over time, but also a detriment because we haven't really culminated our knowledge anywhere because all of us, myself included, are guilty of going back to that touchstone point because we recognize it as being something that's going to be so common to the knowledge core of the discipline nationwide. Oh, that's fascinating. And does that also happen in the review process? So if you try to write about these topics without starting with Weber, are you immediately pushed to do so? Or do you, do you have a feeling that that's how that operates? I don't know. I don't know. I'll confess, I haven't tried. Okay. <laughs> uh, I haven't tried, in part because I was also really 
compelled. Like for myself, the way that my interest in bureaucracy got started was by reading about it in Weber and having it clash up against some of the lived experience that I had had prior to graduate school, having lived on the ground in Ghana for, I I think at that point, about two years. It led me to feel like I had this experience of how certain parts of doing large formal organizations in the context of Ghana and West Africa were pretty different from the way that Weber was talking about them. So that was like the wellspring, that exposure point from his established position within classical theory was the thing that led me to read more about bureaucracy. And so as I read about all of these other scholars in the interim, like Art Stinchcomb, like Eisenstadt, back in the kind of mid 20th century, but lot since, you know, I, I kind of fell into this trap that I think a lot of graduate students are faced with, which is that we get encouraged to engage with highly cited, high profile work. And there are not a lot of people who can stand toe to toe with Weber in terms of how highly cited they are in bureaucracy. So I paid a lot of attention to kind of engaging with him as opposed to really trying to draw together all of the rest of the work. It also allows you to do some shorthand. I do qualitative research and it takes thousands of words just to introduce your data. And so in that context, if I have to do some sort of a summary of everything that's ever been written on bureaucracy, it winds up taking so much space, I can't actually get to the story I want to tell. But if you have something that's occupying a position in the canon, you can relatively quickly reference the idea of Weberian bureaucracy and maybe say a couple of lines about what you mean by it. And that allows you to cut much quicker to what you actually want to talk about. So again, it's one of those blessings that cuts both ways, I think. If you don't mind, could we spend a little bit more time on that first encounter? So you were telling us that you spent time abroad and then you returned and at some point you were exposed to Weber's ideas. When did that happen or what do you remember about the experience? So I was not a sociology undergraduate major. My undergraduate major was in something called learning and organizational change, which is actually kind of like organizational efficiency. So I came to sociology in grad school in my very first semester of grad school at Northwestern. I had Wendy Esplund as my classical theory teacher. And so right out of the gate, we were reading Economy and Society selections of it, but pretty hefty selections of it and the Protestant ethic. So that was really my first exposure. And I think I remember being really excited by the expansiveness of it, like the sort of unbridled ambition of wanting to create a theory of all of economy and society and how it worked together and to try to kind of drill up and down at different levels, like all the way to like how at the time emerging form of doing formal organization in bureaus that had these standing tasks, how was that organized and how did it work and how did it intersect with other huge forces like the rising of capitalism? It was just thrilling to try to be along for that ride. And I remember at the time loving, just loving my classical theory class and feeling really inspired to want to think and write that way. Even sometimes I think to Wendy Esplin's consternation, (laughs) wanting to write think that way. But I also thought at the time that that was just like what all of graduate school would be like. And it wasn't until I had taken more other classes that I realized that there was something really distinctive about theory that I loved and theory Maybe even in that sort of now we kind of think of ourselves as past grand theorizing. But I think there's something wildly inspiring and audacious about that moment of grand theorizing uh, at the beginning. So it was just those big ideas that kind of drew you in and you found so, so compelling. The big ideas, the big ambition of like synthesizing across so many different societies that I think you see in Max Weber's work, but also uh, in Elementary Forms of Religious Life by Durkheim, where you're really kind of trying to pick at these patterns 
that are simultaneously richly detailed in the particular society that they're talking about. And here we might think of like some of Weber's comparative work on religion, but also really with the ambition of sort of looking across those otherwise seemingly different cases to find the through line that might allow us to start to think about human society, both deeply within its individual local context, but also perhaps as having something in common that transcends the local context. Did you find yourself immediately going back to Weber's writing and and trying to find more or did some time pass? Was there some sort of gap that existed before you returned to these ideas? I did have a gap. I so coursework is <laughs> coursework is kind of like trying to jog on the treadmill at eleven. And because I had almost no prior sociological training, I had taken a world systems course sequence and I had taken one social inequality class. And those things had convinced me that uh, that I wanted to do sociology as a graduate education. But I I lacked so much of the background that a lot of my classmates had. So my early coursework years was a lot of trying to like jog to catch up. And so I wasn't kind of constantly going back to Weber. I did a master's thesis that was focused on immigration at the time. And I had been sort of bothered in having some discussions about remittances and these weird ways in which we were trying to pigeonhole remittances into the language of households. But sometimes they weren't really about households. Sometimes they were about kin. Sometimes they were about something else. So in that context of having kind of had a research experience and had something that was sort of like the grain of sand that was kind of troubling or bothering me that I was worrying about, that I was leaning into and kind of trying to think through, uh, Chaz Kamek came to Northwestern and he offered an entire course on Mox Favor. And that was where I started working on that annoyance that I felt about the way we were describing remittances and started really reading through Weber in a more purposive way than I had, I think, as a in classical theory where I had just been sort of trying to like chug it down and lay down that baseline understanding that it seemed like I lacked that other people maybe already had. When I went back in the luxury of a seminar course, it was like really wanting to dig in and also to think about ways in which this could or could not be useful today or would have to be modified to be useful today. And so out of that course and that discomfort or that irritation that I felt from my exposure to the literature, the contemporary literature on remittances, I was reading in Max Weber and got really interested in his idea of budgetary units. And the more I read across economy and society, the more I became convinced that this idea of budgetary units actually really was meant to be a much more substantial part of his overall theory in that book. Um, the book was posthumously compiled out of you know notes and notes and piles of notes and drawers and desks. So there are only parts of the book that are organized in the way that Weber had already set the organization himself for printing. And a lot of the other ones were posthumously organized. And so trying to really reconstruct what we know about the history of how that book came together, where it reflects kind of Weber's most up-to-date thinking before his death, how he was juxtaposing his thinking on these budgetary units against other major conceptual through lines from that book, like capitalism. Uh, And I got really excited about thinking about what budgetary units was in his writing, but also if we extrapolate out what it might have been, what, what didn't get done in that project of thinking through how organization outside of the productive capitalist oriented manufacturing and production economy, what that dovetail in the consumption economy looked like. Would you be able to explain that concept a little bit more? Because I'm just thinking about when I teach Weber in theory, or even when I took it the first time, I don't even think we talked about the idea of budgetary units. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You could and should. It was my very first publication. Okay. Uh, my, first, <laughs> my first publication was budgetary units. It came out with AJS. Okay. Uh, it came out in 2013. 
So the idea there is that if you read, especially through the chapters where Weber had kind of prepared them for printing, he's really pairing the idea of a budgetary unit with this kind of on the one hand, which is this unit of consumption and thinking about how is the social world organized into small, relatively durable groups that are doing the work of consuming things and deciding what to consume and how to consume and where to consume. And then on the other hand, the productive apparatus of society. So they really look like bookends in that early setup of the theory. So I wanted to pick up that idea of thinking about the economy as being organized as a kind of system that involved not only the production that we've paid so much attention to, but also that part of the economy that involves consumption decisions that are made, not purely atomistically as a single human, which seems to be what we often assume, but rather often in these social clusters where we have to bump up against the wants and the desires and the perceptions of other people with whom we have semi-durable relationships. You know, it's really fascinating. And I, I think it might be revealing of how we read theory, but in particular Weber, and I'm completely guilty of this as well when I teach Weber, of how we treat his writing, especially economy and society, as these individual encyclopedia entries where you can just pick and choose what's useful or what's fascinating. And I don't feel like we always look for that through line or that guiding argument that kind of brings the whole package together. Yeah, for me it was. And it wasn't until I had that opportunity to really devote a quarter, Northwestern was on the, the quarter system, to digging into Weber that I was able to do that kind of reading where I was really systematically trying to trace a concept through all of the places where it appeared think about all of the things it was in dialogue with throughout that, but also think about that unfolding of it as a part of his work. And that article does more in, in terms of actually doing a close reading of what Weber said about it and building out the concept through a close reading of Weber before I get into the more sort of theorizing and applying work. So it was a, it was a very fun article to write. I mean, and again, I think there was like a, a tiny bit of when I started writing it, I just was really interested in the idea. And I like it was one of those things like I hate to admit that there were just whole bursts of it where I would get up at like two or three a.m. And I had this idea. I just really had to get out and I would write for like two or three hours that produced a large chunk of that. But I was still mostly thinking about it as a class paper at the time. It was not until people kept reading it and saying, like, you should really send this out somewhere that I even started thinking about it as the kind of thing that could be for external consumption. That's a pretty awesome story. I mean, the idea of writing your seminar paper and then getting into a top journal. <laughs> that's that's kind of what we all imagine. Yeah, well, and now as a teacher, I feel like the desire to pay that forward somehow <laughs> and to try to be able to produce that same experience for the graduate students in my class, which is a challenge, I yeah, guess. Yeah, a little pressure that you put on yourself. But a great, a great thing to aspire to, I think. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit more about your own research and the trajectory that you've gone on. So how have you seen Weber influencing your work as you go out into the field and, and build this body of, of scholarship? My work has two kind of subcomponents to it. One subcomponent is around the slice of economic life having to do with consumption, of which the budgetary units work. And then I have some work right now on kind of multiple versions of perceiving morality through the lens of consumption. And then the other part of my work uh, although sharing kind of an overarching interest in how social organization affects political and economic outcomes, about putting forward a more cognitively and culturally grounded understanding of social organization has to do with political organization, and in particular being really interested in the political organization of administrative states in low-income contexts. So my primary fieldwork is in Ghana. So there I would say that I was really influenced at the time by 
when I was starting the work, it was this kind of moment of the flourishing of developmental states kind of peaking a lot of excitement about developmental states from people who worked outside of the U.S. That seems like the primary way in which information about states and lives outside of the U.S. and Europe were being viewed by the mainstream of society, of sociology rather. So I had been interested in the idea of developmental states, and they were sort of tacitly based on this idea of Weberian bureaucracy. So I found myself kind of once again getting cozy with Weber, only this time through the lens of bureaucracy. And so unlike budgetary units, where I was really resuscitating a concept that I saw as very central to Weber's work, but which had not been built into the subsequent canon of his work. With bureaucracy, I was squarely sitting on like perhaps the most highly recognizable concept he's developed. And so there it was a different set of challenges. I didn't really go into the field necessarily thinking I was going to write a paper about bureaucracy. I think I went into the field with some of the assumptions from the developmental state work that, but of course it had to be Weberian bureaucracy. And then I was going to ask a higher order question on top of that. And instead, as I was going through and collecting data and collecting information, I started to kind of realize that not only were there these slippages between the idealized what would a Weberian bureaucracy look like, but in some ways, the moments and the ways in which the highly effective Ghanaian state units that I was studying worked and were organized were not only just different from Weberian bureaucracy, but they started to seem kind of antithetical to some of the classic characteristics that we often have students read about in association with bureaucracy. And so that became a thing that I wanted to lean into and use that to think about how we can highlight more of the often unsaid boundary conditions of what gets put forward as generalizable social theory, but which in fact are often based on the U.S. and Europe, and to think instead about how we can better understand the human condition or states or whatever it is we're looking at in a more holistic way if we interrogate some of those boundary conditions and if we expand the horizon of what we use to theorize to include a more wide range of human life experiences outside of the U.S. and Europe. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about what you were seeing that was antithetical to Weber's writing? Because I find it really fascinating to have these big giant theories that offer predictions of what should be happening with something like a bureaucracy, but then you're in a space where things just aren't matching up. So I'd love to get some examples of that or have you think through that disjunction. Sure, absolutely. So one of the things I remember being really struck by is that if we take the received wisdom about bureaucracy coming out of Weber and others, there's the sense that there's a really stable career progression through bureaucracy, that that's indeed one of its attractions that you go from lower level to middle manager, and that middle managers are almost sort of like the icon of bureaucracy, these little cogs in the wheel. And then when I looked at the cases that I was looking at in Ghana, of these high-performing organizations or units within the public sector who are unusually good at getting their job done in a context that often is prone to organizational failure, what I was really struck by was how few middle managers there were, and indeed how few people in middle life at all were in these organizations. And one of the things I began to piece together was that if we look more broadly in Weber's writing, if we if we step back from just that canonical list, one of the things he mentions is that the promise of a secure existence is part of the conditions around bureaucracy, that they have to be able to offer financial security in the form of a monetary salary that's sufficient to allow people to make a reasonable living. And that is just not true in the public sectors of a vast number of contemporary states. So what I was seeing was in, in a context where it's very hard to actually have a secure financial living with your public sector wage, it meant that people were in a squeeze. 
they either had to be willing to suborn their position and take bribes or use their position to bring in money above and beyond their promised career salary, or they had to do what people in these pockets that I were studying do, which is to say they had to have already a reasonable amount of financial security. That meant that instead of the midlife middle managers, what we had was a lot of relatively fresh graduates who were pretty young. Most of them did not have a lot of financial dependents, like children that they had to pay for already. And they often were young people still able to stay at home in their parent or family homes. So they didn't have rent to pay. Some of them had food provided by family. For them, the relatively small career of a low-level civil servant was a financial situation they could tolerate because they had family members who were offsetting their consumption costs. And then also they could make a tough trade-off, which was to say they could get very high-level exposure now, even though they weren't getting a lot of pay, anticipating that in their career future, they could capitalize on that by using that high-level government experience to parlay their way into, for example, a higher-level private sector job. Conversely, you had some people who were older, much more professionally established people who were coming into public service at a relatively high level. So, for example, the Ghanaian Commercial Courts had recently been founded, and a large number of the founding justices were people who had come in from private practice. So they had years of high-level, financially lucrative private practice that had established savings for them. They had aged out of having a lot of children as dependents. Their children were, many of them, grown and relatively well-established. So once again, their consumption needs had gone down. They had a high amount of savings from their prior work. And they were able to make that, again, financial trade-off of going into the public service. And at that level, what they were training was, yes, the financial compensation was going to be less than they had made in the private sector, but they were making that trade in order to exercise kind of authority at the pinnacle of their profession. So those two ends had people whose social position allowed them to make trade-offs that could tolerate both because of their established position and consumption, but also because of what they were getting on the other end of that bargain, the relatively low compensation that the public sector offered without being overly and unduly tempted to abuse their office for private gain. That is just one of a couple examples that I have that I work up in a piece that came out in ASR in 2017 called Patrick Leviathan that talks, it's built around the idea that these units flip Fabian bureaucracy on their head. This brings us to what I find to be the most fascinating question. And I haven't really figured out how to ask it yet, but your research is really perfect for this, which is how do you conceptualize your relationship to Weber? So what, what are you doing with his ideas? Is it that you're demonstrating how they're wrong? Is it that you're just finding a few areas of weakness and expanding them? Are you just taking his theory and bringing it to a new case study? Uh, I mean, in a sense, what are, what are we doing with classic theory? What are we doing with these ideas from 100 years ago when the world looked a little bit different than it does now? Yeah, and I think that that brings up a discussion that, you know, we can maybe have later in greater depth about sort of what is the role of, of classic theory as an instruction with, within the way that we teach sociology. But I think I often think of myself as building on Weber's work. So in the budgetary unit sense, it was kind of saying things that I think maybe Weber would have said if he had had the time, if he had been able to go forward in time and kind of understand better us as the contemporary readers of his work and the way that the intervening hundred years would develop scholarship. In the case of me engaging with his ideas about bureaucracy, I think, again, I see myself in some ways as having a dialogue with how scholars in the intervening years have 
taken a part of Weber out of the context. So there the argument is we've really, really fetishized this like small clip about Weber and like these are the characteristics of bureaucracy. It involves paperwork and discrete jurisdictions and and it becomes like this just like neat little list that you can quote in a line or two. But that we take that out of the context of some of the other things that Weber writes about, which is around the bureaucratic ethos that like, yes, there were a set of characteristics, organizational practices that he identified at the time in his context as being associated with doing this sort of organizational work through the bureau. But that also and very important to that was this idea that people engaged in the work of a bureau had a particular ethos, a way of seeing and acting and being and representing themselves while they were on the job. That was a very distinctive characteristic that differentiated that form of doing administration from historically prior forms of administration. So to me, I don't know that I necessarily see myself as saying Weber was wrong. I see myself more as saying we have subsequently taken part of his work out of the context of the other part of it, that what I see going on in Ghana is very much a bureaucratic ethos, but that to cultivate that bureaucratic ethos in the context of contemporary Ghana requires a very different set of characteristics to allow that organization to grapple with its environment than were the kind of characteristics that were required at the end of 19th century Germany, which, you know, I think on face value makes actually a ton of sense. Let's go to that question that you were bringing up at the start of your previous answer, which is how has your relationship to Weber changed over the years from being someone first exposed to the ideas to being a researcher? And then in particular, bringing these ideas into the classroom and teaching a new generation of students and scholars. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was first exposed to Weber and classical theory, it was very much as like a doe-eyed accolade, like, wow, this is the master. I've come to sit at his feet. I just want to like consume as much knowledge as I can. And I think that that's a, I think a lot of students have that, especially if they're people who are coming to sociology for the first time. I was also a first generation college student. So I was to some extent coming to the entire activity of academics as a, a very kind of doe-eyed acolyte. I think over time, one of the biggest changes for me was really coming to appreciate the idea that yes, Weber had a really expansive intellect. He was incredibly well-read He was pretty well-traveled, but he also had a positionality. He was a child within an industrialist family. He had a father, as I said at the opening, who was an aspiring politician who was involved in the politics of the day in Germany. He had a mother who was a Calvinist. Those aspects of his life journey, the things that it gave him differential exposure to, clearly informed the kinds of work that he's made his most lasting impressions with. But I think it's important to also realize that Every point of view has not only the expanse it can see, but also the things it cannot see or the things it does not prioritize because it's not part of his lived experience. And I think that's a thing that I've become more cognizant of and that I think I see social theory as a whole, especially the slice of debates that are going on right now about the role of classical theory in sociology education going towards is really trying to appreciate what are the ways in which some of our founding theorists that we've enshrined in this course that has so much agreement across the nation, how are they limited in the point of views that they maybe bring to the table uh, or the perspectives that they're not seeing and talking about? Okay. So then in teaching Weber, is that something that you're much more transparent about now or that you highlight those limitations or even blind spots of Weber? It is one of the things we try to talk about. So for example, I teach a graduate sociology of organizations class And one of the things that we sometimes read and talk about is the parts of the Protestant ethic where he talks about peace rates and why people do or do not respond in particular ways to rises in peace rate incentives that were 
being experimented with at this kind of turn of the 20th century moment. And then we also read a slice from the kind of early industrial relations Hawthorne studies. And the thing that I think is interesting about that is that in Faber, you see him sort of assuming that people are cultural dupes, that they that workers are too stupid to understand that they should work harder to earn more money and that earning money is sort of a value to be perceived and that people who just work as much as they needed to earn the wage that they earned yesterday and go home are somehow missing the boat. And then in the Hawthorne studies, they're not just taking the perspective of management, they're actually going and working very closely right around roughly the same time period with workers and observing workers closely, observing the conversation between workers. And they come to a very different conclusion about why workers don't respond fully to piece rate incentives, which is that workers are very, very suspicious of management. And they believe that if they respond to piece rate incentives by increasing their productivity, management will eventually reduce those incentives, but hold them to the higher now revealed productivity level. Uh, and I think that's that's a moment for having a discussion about how Weber, by virtue of his alignment with the industrial management class, perhaps by not going in and doing that shop floor, close observation of people who didn't see and think about the world the way he did, misinterpreted perhaps what was going on. All right. So as a final question, as a way to wrap up the podcast, I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit on the selling points of Weber and how we read Weber and why it's worth doing so. So drawing on your experience as a teacher or as a researcher, if you're in front of that room of undergrads, grad students, people outside of academia, why do we engage in this sometimes difficult task of reading a scholar like this? And his work, because of the scope, can be very daunting. Uh, sometimes the writing can be dry. But why is it worth still going back and opening up economy and society or the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Yeah, I, I think you're totally, you're totally, I've never found vapor dry. So I'll say no, not dry. But I can definitely sympathize with the idea of it being kind of overwhelming and how expansive it is. I think it opens up a conversation about what is classical theory to us as contemporary practicing sociologists, whether as students or as scholars in our own right. Sociology is an interesting field. We have a very high premium on novelty. And we have kind of a simultaneous weight on both theory and theoretical generalizability, but also empirical veracity. That's a particular constellation of disciplinary tastes that makes us somewhat different from disciplines like anthropology or economics. And I think one of the strange consequences of that is that we have a tendency to say, for example, create a lot more terms. In psychology and economics, you see there's much more of a convergence around a set of terminology that then gets driven forward as a research agenda over 20 or 30 years. You see that in social psychology as well. Mainstream sociology has been a lot less likely to do that, to drive forward that continuous building agenda around a set of terms. And so in that sense, I think I'm very sympathetic to the role that classical theory plays as one of perhaps a handful of touch points that we have in common as a discipline and have had in common as a discipline for a long time. I think there is a virtue to be had for having some common ground about where conversations start. But it's also become, I think, and justly so, increasingly contentious as we think about how that moment in which our discipline was born was also really problematic in terms of the exclusion of women and scholars of color from the academy. And even those who fought incredibly to get into the academy were marginalized in terms of the attention that their work received. And so we now, to the extent that we valorize people who had their foot in the door at the beginning, are continuously doubling down on that privilege and carrying it forward in the intervening decades. So I think there's some interesting conversations going on about how we can think about, does classical theory have a value? How can we make it exciting in terms of showing its contemporary relevance? Like, 
to me, I see Max Weber ideas all over the place. I mentioned at the beginning, the sciences of vocation, that idea about, you know, what can we as social scientists do is part of what inspires me to have a conversation with my undergraduates in every class I teach about the difference between their opinion and their preferences, which kind of builds on this idea that, yes, you're allowed to have preferences, but you're not allowed to have opinions about states of fact. That's something subject to empirical validation that we can look at in the world. You cannot have an opinion about whether A causes B. You can have access to a set of evidence that might persuade other people about whether or not A causes B. Those kinds of conversations are written hundreds of years ago, but incredibly relevant today. So I think there's both a way to take forward what is really helpful and useful about classical theory and to the extent that it's relevant to really show that aspect of the continuing structures of society that we carry forward with us. But also to think about how we can broaden the canon and include some interesting new work. I think in that regard, you know, a lot of attention and praise should go to Alden Morris's really tremendous work to bring the contributions of W.E.B. Du Bois back into conversation through his book, The Scholar Denied. I think there's some really interesting connections that people might not be aware of, for example, between W.E.B. Du Bois and Max Weber as a moment of kind of opening up that dialogue about what might have been, what could have been different if Weber had actually thought more critically and seriously about race. And if we had elevated W.E.B. Du Bois from the beginning to the status that he kind of deserves in the discipline as an early observer of a huge chunk of life experiences. Uh, and so... There's a scholar at UC Santa Barbara, Christopher McCauley, who has a book out in 2019 with Notre Dame's Press, actually about these series of letters that went back and forth between W.E.B. Du Bois and Max Weber. There's some other scholars who've written about this as well and done some published work. So anyone who's interested can kind of trace some of these histories of the letters and, and see Max Weber in brief ways start to engage through his scholarly correspondence with Du Bois about Weber thinking about how important racial categorization was and that it was going to be a really pressing issue in the 20th century. I think it's super interesting. The other thing is that Max Weber also opens up the potential to discuss the marginalization of women and women's thought in early sociological theory or the early academy through the lens of the experiences of his wife, Marianne. There's some interesting moments of her really being a, an advocate for women, for women's experience in society, but also in the academy. And some interesting work that's been done around her writing, not only her writing as the spouse and curator of Faber's reputation, but her writing in her own right. Perfect. I, I really appreciate you ending thinking about why we still read this stuff, but also possibilities for new ways to read this. So that's a perfect way to end. So thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Mm -hmm.